The Guardian. The sound of disorder on the streets of the capital as demonstrators clash with police. This was the flashpoint between officers in riot gear and marchers protesting about the rise in tuition fees. The year before, London saw similar clashes as battles erupted at the G20 demonstrations. And many fear this sorry history will repeat itself as demonstrators and the police shared a street space again this weekend for the TUC's March for the Alternative, expected to be the biggest mass protest since the 2003 march against the Iraq war. Everyone hopes it passes off peacefully, but all sides accept the possibility that there might be trouble. 4,500 officers will be deployed and in this week's Focus podcast we examine the issue of policing protest. We talk to the police, protesters, those who monitor police operations and ask, are we striking the right balance between firmness and fairness? Lynn Owens, the Assistant Commissioner in Charge of Public Order Policing, says her objectives are clear and that the Met has also responded to complaints about the most controversial tactic in their armoury, the detention of protesters in one place for long periods, also known as kettling. I, I know people are very keen to talk to us, uh, talk to us about containment. Um, containment is a tactic of last resort. We are here today because we are planning for a peaceful protest. It would be naive not to an anticipate that there, there may be some groups that don't want to protest peacefully, but it is very important from my perspective that we appropriately set the mood for the day and don't start from a position that we think there is going to be violence because we think violence would be unacceptable and we are not encouraging it in people. Nonetheless, we do have to plan for that eventuality. If we do have to use containment, it will be a tactic that we use as a last resort in response to serious or significant violence in the city. And the feedback we had following the student protests was that when people were contained, there were vulnerable or innocent people who found it difficult to get out of the containment. So that's one of the reasons that we have improved our communication methods, both in terms of Twitter um, and in terms of uh, other online services. The containment manager that is being appointed will be based in our special operations room um, and will be able to, from the very early stages of any violence, be planning for the early and earliest dispersal of people from containment. We will also be expecting our officers on the ground to engage in the direct communication with protesters to ensure that those people who are innocent can be released early, but if we have to make arrests, we can do that and we can do it properly and speedily. In January, the Metropolitan Police Federation spoke of what can be fairly described as a, a crisis of confidence in leadership. They said, um, what do our senior officers want us to do when there's uh, disorder, to stand back um, and twiddle our thumbs or to go in and enforce the law? What, what have you said since then to reassure them? One of the things that makes me very proud to be a police officer is that I know all the police officers from London and from the county forces uh, who are attending on Saturday will behave professionally um, in response to the, the, the organisation as we, we set it out to be. So our expectation is that they come expecting to protest a peaceful protest. However, as I have said, if we have to intervene against violence, I'm very confident officers will do that. There is an expectation that they will use force if they have to, um, and it will be the minimum force required to meet our lawful aim. Are they clear about the circumstances in which you would um, allow them to do that? On Thursday we have a whole day of briefings for our officers um, and I'm very confident that because of the planning and the conversations we've had and down to the very constables on the ground they will be very clear about our expectations on that day. 
Assistant Commissioner Lynn Owens on the Met's view of the task ahead. Well, Scotland Yard may be the nerve centre for planning the police operation, but a couple of miles away at the offices of the human rights organisation Liberty, they're also engaged in detailed preparations. The group has a unique agreement, which has seen its officials sitting in on police planning meetings. It will also be given access to the police control room on the day. Liberty's legal director, James Welsh, says that's a good deal. We have offered, decided to um, be legal observers to the TUC March on the 26th of March. And what the Met have kindly agreed is that not only are we going to have observers out on the street on the day on the 26th of March watching what's happening on the street, but we're also going to have a couple of people observing within the Metropolitan Police's Command Centre. And I've also been going to some of the Met's preparatory meetings to sort of observe um, in advance of the meeting. So this is sort of 360 degrees observing, if you like. What about those who uh, worry about it and say that you're an independent um, group, famously so, and that maybe you're getting a bit too close to the Met on this occasion? I don't think we are qualifying our independence in any way by doing this. We are going to be completely independent. We will say it as we see it. Um, we will do a report at the end of the process and make comments if we think something has gone wrong. I don't think our independence is being challenged in any way by doing this. The fact that the police are giving us access, I think, shows that the police understand that there have been problems in the past that they want to seek to address. But I don't think our independence is being challenged or reduced in any way by the fact that we're sort of watching it slightly from the inside. What are the protocols? How does this work then? If you're in the control room and you see something untoward, do you have some kind of agreement, that, uh, some kind of confidentiality agreement? And what, what do you do and what kind of action do you take if you see something? I, I think the police have agreed that if we see something we don't like, we're entitled to speak about it. Clearly, I think that the fact that the police know that we are watching them is probably going to make them particularly careful, and I think that is all to the good. So I hope that our involvement in this uh, will ensure that the march goes off peacefully without any trouble. Do you have any concern about the attitude that they've displayed towards um, policing demonstrations? Some people would say that they should be facilitators, but actually they're playing too much a part in, in, in the event itself. I think the police, just like every other public body in the country, is still playing catch-up with their obligations under the Human Rights Act. Even if there wasn't a right in English law before the Human Rights Act came into force, now that the Human Rights Act is there, the right to protest is a right that is protected. And I think there has had to be a change in attitude on the part of the police. I think perhaps sometimes in the past, perhaps some officers still view protesters as a, as a pain, something they have to deal with, something they don't really sort of agree with. But the police have got to understand that you know the right to protest is a fundamental and very important democratic right. And part of the police's role is to make sure that protest is facilitated, it can pass off peacefully. Well, you, you talk to the senior officers, and obviously they've been able to persuade you of their good faith. But are you happy that that message filters down to, to the lower ranks who actually do the policing on the streets? We wait to see what happens. Certainly the message that we are picking up from police officers, not setting out to persuade us of this, but this is the sense that we're getting, is that they do understand uh, that their role is to facilitate protest. We are observing to make sure to hold them, if you like, to that promise, if it is a promise. Uh, but we wait to see what happens. We will have people both, as I say, in the command centre on the 26th of March, but also out on the streets, seeing whether in actual fact uh, police officers are living up to what their senior officers are saying. 
Well, as usual bustle in the centre of London, I'm in Victoria Street, close to Parliament and Westminster Abbey. The picture here is of people rushing around, obviously working and dodging the groups of tourists. But this has been the scene in the past of confrontations between the police and the protesters. This has also been an area subject to the controversial tactic of kettling. Jenny Jones, a member of the Metropolitan Police Authority, saw it deployed here during the student protests. And Jenny, if I'm right, you think that kettling's something of a blunt instrument? Well, I think it's worse than that at the moment. I think that the police keep saying that it's only a last resort, but they're clearly not using it as a last resort. It's just one of many tactics they use on every occasion. So I think now we can't trust the police anymore with this and we should actually stop them kettling altogether. In what sense is it arbitrary? What have you seen um, in, in monitoring kettling operations? Well, I suppose one of the worst things I've seen is a complete lack of understanding from the police about what they're doing. You know, you ask the average police officer what's going on, you know, is there any way people can get out from here, what's the exit plan? Nobody seems to know anything, even senior officers just, I, I, I can't say panic, but they certainly react far too negatively to big crowds. You've seen people actually hurt while being in, in, within the kettle? Well, on the third student protest, I was actually standing here outside Westminster Abbey and a young woman, early 20s, was brought out of the crowd by a police medic and she was being looked after. She had a huge bump on her head, which she actually said was from one of the railings that had been thrown by protesters. But while she was there, she started being hit by the police and she was, she was very, very stressed, very upset and said, they wouldn't stop hitting me, they wouldn't stop hitting Within me. Within the kettle itself? Within the kettle itself, because they were, and they wouldn't let her up. That was the real problem. She couldn't get to her feet to save herself and so she just kept being hit. Being hit. Now, of course, what the, the, the Met seem to be trying to do is a, an improved version of kettling. Do you think that will work? I've been asking them to improve conditions for kettling. They have resisted this. Finally, there does seem to be a glimmer. We've got a new police officer in charge. She does seem to have some very good ideas and I'm 100% supportive of that. But ultimately, I think it's too strong a weapon. It actually deprives people of their liberty and it's unacceptable to do that, especially when people are actually protesting peacefully. Of course, one of the other complaints people make is that they feel that they're subject to a great big police intelligence gathering operation. Um, you yourself were involved in an incident, were you not, where uh, it was clear that you were, you were being watched from uh, a, a fair distance? Well, I was, it was at the second demo, and I was behind the kettle lines w w watching the police and what they were doing, and I was chatting to the officer who was in charge of the line, and he said to me, he took a phone call, and then he said to me, oh, I've just been told I've got to be careful what I say to you. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, at headquarters, they said, you know, you're a member of the police authority and so on. And I said, how on earth did they know that we were talking? And the officer just pointed up at the sky at the police helicopters. So your simple conversation with that officer was being monitored by a helicopter? Well, I'm not sure if they could read my lips, but they could certainly see it was me. And then I was chatting to an innocent police officer. I think the police are going too far on this as well. And they are recording people who are perfectly innocent, perfectly free to do whatever they're doing. And then perhaps you it against them. Because how do they square that circle? It's very difficult, isn't it, between allowing people the legitimate right to protest and maintaining public order? Yes, of course, but a lot of that is about actually telling people what's going on. On the protest I mentioned earlier, the second one, they, uh, the police wanted to recover the van that had been trashed and, and graffitied. And the police officer that I was chatting to asked me what I thought he should do about it. And I said, well, if you tell every single officer in the line, and they should tell the people in front of them, the protesters, and uh, you know, people will probably move back. And that's exactly what happened. It happened very slowly, very peacefully, because everybody in the line knew exactly what was going on. Police and protesters understood. And so I think 
there is a way to, to police peaceful protest and the police have got some lessons on that to learn. The tradition of street protest goes back hundreds of years, as does the debate about how they're policed. In 1936, the authorities asked Sir John Simon, the Home Secretary, to ban street marches on the grounds that they were disruptive and inconvenient. He refused. They are, he said, an old and well-established method of exhibiting a point of view. John Demacos, a video producer here at The Guardian, agrees with that. But at the G20 demonstration, he was kettled by the Met for up to five hours. John, what was that like? I mean, the main thing I remember about it was actually the shock of, of most of the members of the public who were there. I mean, I personally had seen kettling before on a localised level at kind of at demonstrations that had your kind of regular protesters at. But a lot of people showed up to the G20 demonstration who were parents, you know, young people on their demo for the first time. I don't think they'd ever seen this and they were quite shocked at it. In theory, the tactics being used to stop violence... Was there any violence taking place when you saw it deployed? There, there was violence, you know, RBS was, was smashed up and stuff like that, but, you know, the question I, I have is whether that comes as a result of the kettle or not. I mean, you only have to look at the, the very metaphor of a kettle, you know, a pressure builds up inside a kettle. That leads to inevitable violence between the police at the front line and the people who are up against them. And from what you saw, is that what happened? Um, there are always people who go to these things with the aim of, of causing trouble. But I, I can certainly say from what I've seen at, at the G20 and at other ones like the recent student protests, that the very existence of this kind of battlefront between the police and those being kettled escalates the violence. There's a sense of inevitability you get. You know, every time I've covered these things, I, you know, you see the kettle and you're like, you know, here we go again. You know, you know it's coming. And describe what it's like within the kettle. I mean, what's the mood and, and to what extent do you see people suffering because they can't get out? Yeah, people get hungry, they get tired, they get cold, they get thirsty, they need to go to the toilet. I remember, you know, rivers of urine at the G20 and tensions build up. People start fighting each other. Fights broke out amongst students. What, what is quite a, um, a diffuse anger at that point suddenly has a focus. It's these police guys that are stopping us going somewhere where we want to go. It's a challenge to them and an, an adversary that they come up against. So on that basis, you'd say that as a, a method of maintaining public order, it doesn't even work. No, I don't think so. I think it contains the public disorder while at the same time escalating it. You know, the police have to work out a way to recognise who is out to cause trouble and stop them doing that. And I'm joined in the studio now by Vikram Dodd, The Guardian's crime correspondent, Peter Smythe, chairman of the Metropolitan Police Federation, the Staff Association for Officers, and down the line from Cardiff we have Val Swain, founder of Fitwatch, an organisation which opposes heavy-handed policing and surveillance filming. Val, I'll start with you. The police say they've taken on board all of the criticisms of their operation and have repositioned themselves as the defenders of peaceful protest. Do you agree with that? Well, the problem is this is something that we've heard all too often before. After the incidents of the G20 and the violence there and the cattling there, I mean, we thought we'd seen perhaps the end of this sort of tactic, particularly after it was criticised so heavily by the HMIC. But then we had the student demonstrations and we were back in that form of policing with kettles that were holding people for seven, eight, nine, ten hours in horrendous conditions and with some really nasty violence from the police. So, no, we don't really take this on trust at the moment. Are you against the whole concept of kettling? Because I think there was a poll for the Adapting to Protest review that said that the public actually supports kettling for short periods and as long as it's proportionate. You know, it has to be, it has to be quite uh, a serious thing for the, for the police to justify containing people in one place, refusing their right of, of movement and their freedom of movement. Kettling is used at the drop of a hat. 
it's used frequently, it's used on small and large demonstrations, and it's used whenever the police feel that they want to contain people for, for whatever reason. And one of the big problems with kettling is we feel that it's used deliberately to deter protests because People in, in held in a protest have become very frustrated, become very angry, become very fed up. They don't want to come again. It has a significant impact on the freedom to protest long term, simply because of the psychological effect it has on people who are contained. Well, we have the chair of the Metropolitan Police Federation here, and I'll put that to him in just a moment. But, but just quickly on Liberty. You've heard uh, Liberty say that they will be there completely independently and that they see this as being a very effective way of monitoring what happens because they'll be on the inside and they'll be able to see what actually happens. Why are you not reassured by that? The, the police are, are, are going to use this to give some credibility to their policing operation. And I think Liberty has been a little naive, perhaps, in the way that it has allowed itself to be co-opted in this way. They don't have a background of, of legal observing in recent years. And one of the things that we have found is the absolute importance of maintaining a trust Um, with the protesters on the ground so that we get good information and we get people talking to us about what the police have done and what's happened. That, we don't feel, is going to be the case when it's become known that the Liberty are working so closely with that police. That that close working relationship, um, we feel, will will undermine the trust the protesters have in, in legal observers and fundamentally affect their ability to pick up the information and to properly critique the, the policing operation. OK, let me put some of the points you make to Peter Smythe. Peter, are you sure that the police are playing the right role here in terms of facilitating protest, not, as Val claims, deterring protest? Well, it, it is a problem. Um, we've seen over recent years different tactics have been used and different tactics have been criticised. Uh, very few people tell us how to do it right. A lot of people tell us when we're doing it wrong. Uh, first thing I'd like to say is I hope that TUC March on Saturday goes peacefully. I'm aware that there will be a number of police officers joining the protest, um, so we have a bit of a common cause with the TUC on this one. And I hope it goes really, really well and the, the tactic of containment isn't necessary. But where we saw the student protest beginning at Millbank, containment was only ever used after violence broke out. And therefore, we have a duty to protect the public who are not protesting and trying to go about their lawful business, and we have a duty to protect property. And containment is a legitimate tactic to do that. In the magazine Metline, I think the Federation magazine in in, uh, January, um, it was said, um, and I'm quoting here, it's now time for the leadership of the police service to shove their heads above the political parapet and start leading, telling the officers who will be policing these protests whether to stand back and keep their fingers crossed or come forward and ensure that the law is upheld. Do you still feel you're in that position where officers don't quite know what they should be doing or where they are, what kind of backing they will get for that operation. Yeah, I actually wrote that. Um, (laughs) It it can be ambiguous. If you're a police officer and you're on the street and the order comes down to clear the streets, that can mean going along to people and saying, excuse me, sir, it's time to go now, would you move along, please? Or it can mean a baton charge. And sometimes that isn't clear. And officers need to be given clear instructions what's expected of them if they're going to do the job properly and professionally. So, So that is a problem. And I think in the past senior officers have been a bit guilty of issuing ambiguous orders, shall we say. But where are you now in that regard? Because obviously that was January and there's been a lot of thinking since then. There is. The Met say that they've listened. Um, clearly, Millbank was a complete disaster for the Met. They underestimated the, the protest and they um, weren't ready for it when it, violence broke out. I think this time they will be ready. And I'm really hopeful that the TUC march will be a peaceful protest. And that's what everybody wants. Of course, as we said, 
everyone will be watching what happens on Saturday and there's been a lot of thinking about it. Vikram Dodd, let me bring you in. Um, how high are the stakes for senior officers? Uh, how important is it they get this right? They're, they're very high. I mean, this is the biggest anti-cuts demonstration so far and it also comes after a series of student demonstrations which went very badly for the police on several different fronts. So we've heard from the sort of civil liberties aspect who would be annoyed about kettling, and let's call kettling what it actually is, it's detaining people, admittedly for short periods of time. But on the one hand, you have kettling, on the other hand, you have allegations of people being seriously injured by police-wielding batons. And from the other side, you have annoyance from politicians and from you know ordinary citizens that the streets of London have been smashed up, property's been damaged, and it creates a general sense of disorder. And for this commissioner, Paul Stevenson, who prides himself on back-to-basics policing, and the most basic thing is having control of the streets. You know, to lose control of streets, A, looks bad with the politicians, B, with the general public, and C, amongst Peter's members. Uh, you know, it's not great for cops to see themselves, you know, being overrun. It's not great for them to feel that, you know, they just don't know what to do. And you see this again and again. And the other thing why this is really important is in a few days after that uh, TUC march, the Tomlinson inquest begins. And a number of these themes may well be played out there in terms of senior officers give an order, say something, and basically, to put it at its kindest, cross their fingers and hope to luck that the troops will carry it out and uh, hope that none of the blame comes back on them. Peter, let me ask you, what is it like for your members uh, going into this sort of operation? Is there a deal of trepidation? I mean, how do they approach something like this? Because often the, the protesters will talk to you afterwards and they'll say it was terrifying and, we, and we, you know, a dreadful experience for us. But what do your officers say to you? Well, the pattern seems to be that when everybody forms up, it, it's quite jovial and, uh, you know, you hear stories about people exchanging peppermints and, and chatting away. And then as things develop, unfortunately, sometimes law and order breaks down and that, then it does become very, very difficult. Officers are abused physically and, and verbally. On all of the student protests, I should put it on record that the, the first injury on every single student protest was a police officer. And obviously, it can be quite terrifying. If you're a small number of officers surrounded by a big hostile crowd, that, that can be scary. So officers would have a little bit of trepidation. I think the TUC march will be different from the student demonstrations. We are aware that some groups may try and infiltrate it, but in the main, we are expecting a peaceful protest. Val, presumably you've been on these protests. What, what, how do you describe the attitude that you see from officers when, when you meet them on these protests? Well, I mean, officers on, on the streets are just there to, to do what they're, they're told and, and to carry out the policing operation. I mean, the, the difficulty, I think, is whilst there are clearly some instances where individual police officers have done some terrible things, the bigger problem, I think, overall is the, is the strategy of the police and the way, uh, in general, that the protest is policed. There is uh, an extraordinary uh, expectation that the police can, can control almost every aspect of, of, of protest. There is only really a very narrow band of which, which protest is acceptable. And as soon as people uh, want to determine their own route for a protest or they want to determine their own location for where a protest is held, very often that then causes a confrontation but, but uh, if, within if, the police. But if people are, are not following the agreed rules or misbehaving, the police do have to intervene, don't they? Well, very often 
people don't have much choice in terms of, of what is agreed. I mean, the police are very good at saying, oh, we've, we've, agreed, we've agreed the route. I mean, on the 26th, they clearly have agreed a demonstration route within the, T, within the TUC. But the Assistant Commissioner, Lynn Owens, has given evidence to the uh, Joint Committee on Human Rights, was asked, well, what if happens if people decide to hold another protest? For example, they said there is uh, some indication that people might want to, to have an occupation of Trafalgar Square. Well, an occupation of Trafalgar Square is not unlawful. People are entitled to hold a protest there if they so wish. And yet the reaction of Assistant Commissioner Lynn Owens was, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to deal with that robustly. That would be an unlawful protest. It's that lack of tolerance of any aspect of protest that doesn't come in within this very controlled, narrow band of what the police decide is acceptable protest. Well, of course, there'll be massive scrutiny of everything that the police do, and of course, more so with all the social media and the fact that people have camera phones and, fact, and there'll be Twitter. Um, to what extent, Vikram Dodd, um, does the, the press have a role to play here? Because Val mentioned the Joint Committee on Human Rights that sat at the, at the House of Commons, and they were quite critical of the way the media sometimes reports these protests, accusing the media of ramping them up and then adding to the problems. Is that a fair criticism? Not entirely sure, and also I, I hesitate to answer a question which involves you know the phrase the media because there's as there are good and bad police officers, there's good and bad media. Uh, I think their particular criticism from that August Select Committee came from uh, a Frinker phrase ahead of the G20, which is the police saying we're up for it, which came from a police briefing. So in that case, all the media was doing was accurately reporting. In terms of the media, mainstream and new, you know, you have uh, the cops watching protesters through their own forward intelligence teams and their own filming and CCTV, and now you have that reverse from protesters with those little cameras and mobile phones being able to film police like they've never been able to be filmed before. As in the mainstream media, A, we're doing our own watching, our own uh, photographing, and we act as a sort of way to curate all of that as well. The police have to change, partly because of the technology. It's not just... If uh, Tomlinson happens, it's the fact that the overall <coughs> image of the force can be damaged by mobile phone footage of a bit of violence, which, you know, even if it seems to be fair later on, in the context it's put, can seem really damaging. Peter, let me put that to you. How, to what extent, if you were involved in this policing operation, would you have it in the back of your mind, every single thing I do might be captured on someone's camera phone or may, may well be on YouTube within the hour? I think it's certainly in the back of the mind, and I think it's probably... Closer to the front of their mind than the back. But is, yeah, that, it, is that it, a bad thing? Probably not. Officers are very aware that, that, that they will be being filmed during the protest, and that isn't a problem for us. Um, all I would say is that uh, a five-second clip doesn't always tell the whole story, and uh, so, sometimes you need to see what happened before and afterwards to, to have a clear picture of what actually happened. But yeah, cameras are part of life now, everybody accepts it. OK, thank you, but that's all we have time for now. As we said, the debate on protests and policing has been underway for hundreds of years. No doubt it will go on for some time yet. My thanks to Peter Smythe of the Police Federation, Val Swain of Fitwatch, and our crime correspondent Vikram Dodd. The producer of this podcast was Ian Chambers. I'm Hugh Muir. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.